You ever get into one of those quibble fests with a friend where you're trying to convince each other who the first or the best or the somethingest of something is? Like, who's the best guitarist? Who was the first used hammer-on fingering in a guitar solo? Or who was the best ball sport move of all ball sport players of ball sports this is? Yeah. See, I feel like the goth metal thing is a real quibble. Who's the best and who did it first? We could obviously look at this through an accurate chronological lens, or... We could just go with my preference. We're going to go with my preference. That's more fun. See, you're listening to your favorite Silver Vixen and Maverick metal music maven, Geneviève Genepi. And, well, I'm naming the standard, the reference for all goth metal bands, as typo negative, making Peter Steele the OG, or shall I say, the OV, the original vampire. We have no gangsters here. Here there be monsters. And Peter Steele is one of the great founding goth monsters. Mm. The original metal vampire prince. I shall accept no rebuttals on the subject. Let's go. Peter Steele was not born Peter Steele. Surprise! His birth name was Petrus Thomas Rutajek. Birthday, January 4th, 1962. Mm, I love a Capricorn. Decadent doms of the Zodiac. Father was Polish, mother was Irish-American, and he was raised Catholic. Always an interesting cultural factor. No shade. Fellow lapsed Catholic here, because apparently one never stops necessarily being Catholic. One simply lapses. No Freud involved. Or maybe it is. Not sure. But when comparing Catholic culture to other cultures, there's a flavor of lavish opulence and indulgence to it. There's a more visceral touch to Catholics, lapsed or otherwise, that is rather unique. Catholicism emphasizes the use of elaborate and complex ceremonies, complete with symbolic body parts, ornate architecture, think massive Gothic cathedrals with spires and intricate artwork, to convey Catholic themes and evoke a sense of awe and reverence. Growing up in this environment, I would posit artists develop an appreciation for the grandeur and beauty associated with Catholic rituals, which can undoubtedly inspire them to incorporate similar elements in their artistic expressions. Furthermore, Catholicism's focus on themes of sin, redemption, and the divine can fuel an artist's exploration of lavish hedonistic opulence and luxury as a symbolic representation of human desires, struggles, and aspirations. The contrast between earthly extravagance and the spiritual purity, and to some extent the technical impossibility of the latter, inherent to Catholic teachings is intriguing, probably more so to artists who are necessarily seeking to develop their own aesthetic. And in my mind, it without a doubt leads to some prompting to explore themes of excess, indulgence, and the fleeting nature of worldly pleasures in their work. You know, seven or so deadly sins. I feel like they need to revise that number in light of the existence of Pornhub, but sure, seven. Seven deadly sins. Additionally, Catholicism's emphasis on symbolism and allegory can provide artists with, with a rich source of inspiration for exploring complex and layered themes related to decadence and opulence. Hmm, we're running into some word repeat again. At least it's a different word than the last episode. Okay, instead of decadence, let's say luxurious sumptuousness or sumptuous luxury. Whichever you prefer. Tasty, tasty things. The use of symbols... Bottom line, the use of symbols, icons, and religious imagery in Catholic art can serve as a framework for artists to explore themes of wealth, power, mortality, sexuality, and the human condition in its own unique ways. 
And if nothing else, then the fact that Catholic churches tend to be heavily, richly, and beautifully decorated must necessarily be an influencing factor. How long can you stare at beauty before you can no longer accept mundanity? Right. Now, BT dubs, this episode is going to be a little less than NSFW. Steele was fond of being controversial and definitely sexual. I'm going to give you a bit of a warning now. I'll keep it as PG as possible, but things are going to get squidgy around the edges here and there. Things are not going to be very Disney today. If you have kitties in the car or Janice the co-worker is lurking, you might want to save this for another time. Or maybe grab some headphones if you've got them. Or need them. Maybe you don't. Your call. So, you ready? Superb. Extensive intros aside, let's party. Steele was not shy about discussing Catholicism. It was very present in his work. He was generally disdainful of religion, Catholicism in particular, but admitted that it was definitely a factor in shaping him as an artist. He did not go into the wild tangents on the subject I just did, but I do think those are some thoughts worth considering. Steele has some very specific references in a number of songs, including, but most assuredly not limited to, Christian Woman, a big hit for typo negative this one with lyrics that explore themes of lust desire and religious imagery including references to the virgin mary and catholic rituals also from the same album that would be 1993's bloody kisses black number one little miss scarol another big important one for typo while not exclusively about catholicism does include references to catholic imagery such as crosses and confessionals amidst its gothic themes of obsession and darkness we also have Love You to Death, a song from the album October Rust from 1996, which includes lyrics that touch upon themes of Catholic guilt and religious redemption, reflecting Steele's Catholic upbringing and its influence on his songwriting. Bloody Kisses, A Death in the Family, is the title track from the album Bloody Kisses and includes references to Catholic rituals and imagery such as crosses and holy water weeping in through its exploration of themes of love, loss, and mortality. Finally, World Coming Down, the title track from the 1999 album World Coming Down, features lyrics that address themes of addiction, despair, and mortality with references to Catholic rituals and imagery, adding depth to the song's exploration of existential angst. Now, that's a hell of a tangent, considering we're like, what, not even five bullet points into Steele's basic bio? I think we're going to want to swing back to that groundwork in a little bit. So go ahead and put that juicy Jesus sauce on the back burner and we'll get back to talking about the early days of our man Steele, the Capricorn Catholic born in Brooklyn, New York in the early 60s. We got to advance the bullet points here. We got to get them done. Steele often cited the big metal classics Black Sabbath and Deep Purple as early influences. To be sure, they both brought darker, heavy metal music to the world and were certainly not shy on the occult, alternative, and darker themes and imagery. With the band Typo Negative, an official cover was even recorded for Sabbath's Black Sabbath, the title track of the album of the band. <laughs> the cover leans on the drone, doom, and occult vibes. Steele's heavy bass really adds that extra layer of darkness and goth atmosphere so if you haven't heard it yet you really need to check it out it's a rich eerie brooding take on the classic and it really showcases Steele's natural velvety lower register and the band's unique sound distinctly rich heavy dark and moody typo negative covered black sabbath song black sabbath on the album nativity in black a tribute to black sabbath which was released in 94 
The album featured various artists covering Black Sabbath songs, with Typo Negative contributing their unique interpretation of the classic track. A cover also exists for Highway Star from Typo Negative's own album, Dead Again, released in 2007. It's a bit more thrashy and shows off Steele's wild and powerful upper register and his harsh vocal abilities. Less goth, but worth a listen. One of the things that's great about it is how true to the original it is, while simultaneously being so definitely typo-negative. A real testament to how established the band was in their own sound. Another early influence Steele often cited was the Beatles. Steele was known for doing live covers of Hey Jude and Day Tripper, and he put his own spin on them, emphasizing the darkness of the lyrics with his brooding style. And it makes some amount of sense if you stop imagining the original versions, which are extremely peppy and upbeat, and look to the actual lyrics themselves. Day Tripper is a song about a woman who's described as a day tripper, someone who engages in casual recreational drug use without any deeper commitment or understanding of the drug culture. The lyrics suggest that the woman is superficial and only interested in temporary thrills and experiences, rather than genuine connection or meaning. There's definitely a touch of darkness there. Similarly, Hey Jude is a song of encouragement and support, it was allegedly written for John Lennon's son by Paul McCartney during Lennon's divorce. The song's lyrics offer comfort and reassurance to a troubled individual, urging them to persevere through difficult times and not to be afraid. The repeated refrain of Hey Jude is a message of solidarity and empathy. There's definitely a touch of darkness there too, since obviously it was written as a hey look on the positive side, but you can also take it as a portal into the darkness of the mundane letdowns in life if you reframe it from the standpoint of look the bright side is not where we are right now, which is a little bit what Steele does with the cover. And if you have a listen to Steele's covers, you can definitely feel those vibes. These are not themes Steele was shy about touching. Not that I think there was anything he was really shy about touching. Very touchy guy. I'd note that, as usual, I'll be organizing the Chatty Metalhead weekly playlist on Spotify so you can listen to all the songs I name. I'm going to try to get it onto YouTube this week, but no promises. Google is still not loving me. The playlist is under my Spotify profile. That's Geneviève Genepi. G-E-N-E-V-I-E-V-E. Genepi is G-E-N-E-P-I. Please, call me Jen. Have a listen, because even if you know Typo Negative already, I really think I'm going to be able to surprise you. And if you don't know Typo already, well, boy, you're in for a ride. Don't forget to follow the playlist so you can hear next week's as well. So, back to business and early influences. Steele also noted that he appreciated the poetic lyrics of The Doors, along with Jim Morrison's charismatic stage presence, incorporating elements of their psychedelic rock style into Typo Negative's music and performance. For an example, check out Less Than Zero. It's a saucy and savory piece featuring some sitar playing. A sitar is a classical Indian instrument, and it definitely evokes that hippie peace and love vibe when you layer it into rock music, since it was kind of the sound that reverberated through 60s hippie rock and such. A few other notable examples of that psychedelic vibe layered into the heavy sound of typo, though maybe not quite as on the nose as Less Than Zero with the sitar, include my girlfriend's girlfriend with ethereal keyboards and atmospheric guitars, creating a dreamy and otherworld ambience. There's also Summer Breeze, a cover of Seals and Crofts, yes, a pop song, which features psychedelic guitar effects and trippy vocal harmonies, giving the song a unique twist. 
Finally, there's Wolf Moon, which incorporates eerie keyboards and haunting melodies, creating a darkly psychedelic atmosphere. Back to the bio. In his teenage years, Steele's passion for music grew, and he began playing bass guitar. He would also go on to be the main vocalist for the bands he formed, including Fallout, Carnivore, and Typo Negative, just in case you didn't know or hadn't caught on quite yet. He found solace in music, using it as an outlet for his emotions and creative expression. This led him to pursue a career in music, eventually forming his first band, Fallout, in the 1970s. Fallout was primarily focused on playing punk rock music. Now, stop me if you've heard this before, but punk rock is characterized by its fast tempo, short and aggressive songs, and stripped down instrumentation. Steele was known to have cited an admiration for Black Flag's raw energy and DIY ethos, which influenced his attitude towards music and performance in both Carnivore and Typo Negative. You can hear that vibe in the early Fallout songs, as in Rock Hard, which demonstrates what is definitely a more punk rock vibe, but you get some juicy melodies from the keys and definitely some smoother, more luxurious passages from Steele's voice. An early nod to how metal would end up being a better fit for him as a musician. Getting properly not safe for work here. Hmm. The title Rock Hard is uh, not describing heavy guitar-driven music, if you hadn't guessed. It's overtly sexual as a song, describing a few necrophiliac fantasies in fairly explicit manner. The song's aggressive musical style, characterized by heavy guitar riffs that are punky and spunky but pack some chug, along with the driving and pounding rhythms, complements the provocative lyrics, creating a confrontational and rebellious atmosphere. Rock Hard shows that Steele's lyrics and themes reflect his penchant for exploring taboo subjects and pushing boundaries. Even early on, his fearless approach to addressing sexuality and desire in his music contributed to the reputation of Steele's next band, Carnivore, as a provocative and controversial band. It was with the formation of that band, Carnivore, in 1982 that Steele began to gain recognition in the underground metal scene. Carnivore was known for its aggressive thrash metal sound and politically charged lyrics, although sexual lyrics were also very much the norm and the goth flavor, while not dominant, was not absent. The band's debut album, Carnivore, released in 1985, showcased their raw thrash energy and confrontational style. In terms of goth vibes, you can find the darkness and some of that pining sexuality and male supremacy, which features dark, confrontational, rawr, war lyrics, and some bluesy He-Man romance built into the late bridges. The song World Wars 3 and 4 delves into apocalyptic themes with lyrics that explore the devastation of war and the end of the world. Its intense atmosphere and bleak imagery appeal to a taste for goth aesthetics. That said, the star of the show with a lick or two of lechery and enough pining and longing to definitely hat tip the word goth, while also inspiring a trip or two to an adult toy shop, would be the track Carnivore from the album Carnivore by the band Carnivore. <laughs> when you like a name, eh? <clears throat> this is a track that discusses eating things for purposes other than consumption of nutrition. Lot of lecherous licking. Have a listen, but uh, definitely be sure to be clear of the Karens when you do. Suffice it to say, it gives us all the darkness pining and uh, rebel yell in the night crying out for more. 
This happens to be another excellent place for a tangent. Surprise! Sexual imagery, sexual topics, and sexuality as a theme were big in all of Steele's projects. As you've probably already noticed, Steele didn't just contribute to goth culture and the fusion of goth and metal. Steele's use of sex and sexual imagery in his work was both provocative and groundbreaking, challenging traditional boundaries and norms within the realm of rock and metal music. Throughout his career, Steele employed sexuality as a thematic tool, infusing his lyrics, album artwork, and stage presence with overt and sometimes controversial sexual references. One notable example of Steele's exploration of sexuality can be found in the lyrical content of typo-negative songs. Tracks like My Girlfriend's Girlfriend and Love You to Death, which we already discussed, both delve into themes of desire, attraction, and taboo relationships. Steele's lyrics often blur the lines between romantic love and lust, creating a complex and problematic but thought-provoking portrayal of human sexuality. What makes these examples exceptional is Steele's ability to navigate these themes with nuance and depth, exploring the darker and more taboo aspects of sexuality while maintaining a sense of honesty and vulnerability. In addition to his lyrics, Steele's use of sexual imagery in album artwork and stage performances further reinforced his reputation as a provocateur. Typo Negative's album covers often featured provocative imagery, such as the seductive woman on the cover of Bloody Kisses or the suggestive phallic imagery on Life is Killing Me, to say nothing of the outright explicit artwork of the first two albums, which we'll get to in a minute. These visuals served to complement the themes explored in the music, adding an additional layer of depth and complexity to the band's aesthetic. Steele's willingness, if not eagerness, to confront and challenge societal taboos surrounding sexuality set him apart as a groundbreaking factor in the metal scene. By fearlessly exploring themes of desire, lust, and intimacy, he opened up new avenues of expression for artists within the genre, paving the way for future generations to explore the complexities of human sexuality in their music. In this way, Steele's use of sex and sexual imagery in his work transcended mere shock value, offering a thought-provoking commentary on the nature of desire and the human condition. This was true of all the projects he fronted, though probably most true of Typo Negative, which was formed after he left Carnivore. Carnivore, as a band, gained a following in the 80s. They were known for their intense live thrash performances and their heavy and dark thrash music. Following 1985's Carnivore, the second album, Retaliation, was released in 1987, and it further solidified their reputation as a force to be reckoned with in the metal underground. Largely thrash, but with a characteristic darkness and mood. Despite their growing success, Carnivore faced challenges, including financial struggles and creative differences. In 1990, the band disbanded, leaving Steele at a crossroads in his musical career. However, Steele soon found himself embarking on a new musical journey with the formation of Typo Negative. Steele reinvented himself and his musical style with Typo Negative, drawing on Carnivore's music along with the inspiration from different goth rock, doom metal, and classical music tidbits to create a new and unique sound. Now, to be fair, it's not like Typo Negative was the first goth metal band ever. Hopefully you caught that with my Twisty Turny Fishy intro. I'm not that much of a savage Barbary ape that I don't know better. I pretend like I don't, but I do. I get a little feisty and into it, and I'm sure for a split second it might have sounded that way like I was trying to pitch Typo as the first goth metal band ever. But no, certainly not. 
well before Typo was formed, we had My Dying Bride, Theater of Tragedy, Tiamat, and Paradise Lost, who I'm in a mood today, man. I'm finding them. Uh, Paradise Lost has an album <laughs> called Lost Paradise with, you guessed it, a track titled Paradise Lost. I'll see myself out now. But before I do, just know that there was definitely goth metal before Typo. Typo was just one of the big ones, and Peter Steele is, at least in my estimation, and hopefully I'll be able to convince you by the end of this episode, one of the very important figures. They might not have been the first, but they are very, very, very much the standard. That's pretty important. Typo, because I had just discovered in the last... 30 seconds or so, that I am not capable of continuously repeating all five syllables and will be whittling it down to two from here on in. So, Typo crafted a unique sound that defied categorization. Steele's deep bass vocals became a defining characteristic of the band's sound, complemented by guitar work that rang with a little bit of the carnivore thrash intensity, as well as with some atmospheric keyboards that definitely brought the goth and powerful drumming that, again, were definitely flavored with some thrash. In 1991, Typo Negative released their debut album, Slow, Deep, and Hard. And thank gosh golly, because I was starting to not be able to behave myself here, I could not have done another triple. The album was Typo's own original blend of dark, heavy music with elements of humor and irony. The tood was definitely there, from the long whisper of silence at the beginning of the album, designed to trick the listener into turning up the volume only for the next song to come blaring on, to the clip of the Viagra commercial and then the quirky instrumental. The quirky humor throughout and the punky tone of the album as a whole made it rather unique. The thrash is still present, but it isn't quite the dominant sound, and the moody atmospheric keys help balance the rawness, giving it a unique vibe. It wasn't yet the full Type O sound, but it was starting to be. The album received critical acclaim and established Type O Negative as innovators in the metal scene. The songs with the most notable goth vibe include unsuccessfully coping with the natural beauty of infidelity. This track, often referred to simply as, I know you're boning, no it's not, someone else, is an introspective and emotionally charged piece dealing with themes of betrayal, despair, and self-loathing. It's all emotional mood with a good dose of broody emo goth intensity. The brooding atmosphere and Steele's deep, melancholic vocals contribute to the song's gothic undertones. The misinterpretation of silence and its disastrous consequences is an instrumental track which serves as an atmospheric interlude on the album, featuring eerie keyboards and ambient sounds that evoke a sense of darkness and foreboding. Definitely a goth vibe, though again, as a whole, the album was still kind of in flux in terms of actually becoming typo, but the pieces were all there. One more thing. Did I mention the album cover? Yeah, the album cover art is an extreme close-up from a porn magazine. If you look it up, it's a nuclear waste kind of radioactive green of static fuzz with some sort of arching shape towards the bottom. That shape is, well, it's a close-up of vaginal penile penetration. Quintessential typo, that was. This vibe of sexuality as Dissidents continues in their second-ish album, The Origin of Feces, where an actual photo of Steele's anus was used for the cover. The layer of punniness extends to the title, which, if you didn't catch, is a pun on Darwin's The Origin of Species. 
That pun is in part why I say secondish, because the album largely features tracks pretending to be live, all layered with applause and fake audience sounds, made from real audience sounds. Whatever, you get the idea. There were a few new tidbits, but it was mostly just coasting on the theme of the first album. So, second-ish. Now, before we hobble further, we ought to maybe have a quick discussion about goth. We won't devote too much time to what goth is, since that could take a whole episode, but the summary of it is goth is a post-punk movement. Where punk was a simple, stripped-down and raw version of rebellious rock music. Mmm, I'm sure I must have said this somewhere before. Post-punk, inversely, wanted to be able to experiment and enjoy textures and ideas beyond the minimum that traditional punk would allow, while still remaining true to punk as a general idea of dissonance, rebellion, and authenticity, and that ever-present DIY ethos. In the late 70s and 80s, Goth springs from this post-punk movement, still embracing punk's non-conformity, but embracing themes of darkness, melancholy, and romanticism, and drawing on a variety of sources, including literary, cinematic, and artistic, and of course, from the post-industrial British backdrop it was itself growing up in. The big names to drop for original goth artists would be Susie and the Banshees, The Bow Wows, Joy Division, Sisters of Mercy, and The Cure. These artists, these trad goths, as the kids now call them, were noted for their all-black attire, which itself comes from the punk movement, as well as their musical taste for haunting vocals and eerie atmosphere settings. In terms of themes, the music typically explores alienation, romance, and existential angst. We will not travel any further than that, since this is more an exploration of Peter Steele and Typo Negative, not a breakdown of goth. But the least we need to mention, especially now that we're getting into the bits where we reflect on Typo as a goth metal band, and as setting the standard for goth metal, we really might want to have our terms defined a bit. The important idea is that goth continued the non-conformity of punk, but instead of being just anger, it was more pensive and it embraced more luscious ideas and aesthetics. I think one of the sweetest, simplest, and yet most accurate ways to summarize goth that's running around on the socials at this point is that goth contemplates and admires the shadows because every ray of sunshine casts one. There's a beauty to the sadness. That kind of thing. Sums it up nicely. So, terms defined. We didn't really have a ton of goth from Steel up to this point. It was there, but vaguely, barely. There was darkness, there was contemplation and rebellion, flavors taken from his punk and subsequent thrash roots, which themselves, of course, carry a flavor of punk. But until Typo really started to become their own unique entity, we weren't getting the full dose. Steele had admitted to being a fan of the Sisters of Mercy, including their goth rock aesthetic and atmospheric sound. It was said to have influenced Typo Negative's gothic elements and dark brooding themes. In terms of dark atmospheric passages and heavy vibes from guitar, Celtic Frost was also noted as an influence. Even if not strictly a goth metal band, these are threads we can pull on to better understand how Typo found their inner goth and injected that into their music. I'd also take a quick second to retap the vibe of Catholic imagery that we chewed on in depth right at the beginning. Keeping in mind that goth aesthetics is open to embracing the opulence and the decay, the intricacies and the void, the splendor and the rune, the magnificence and the desolation. It is fitting and mixes well with the background in Catholicism. That's it. 
That's my point. No further argument. Just curious how well it fit together. Though you wouldn't necessarily expect them to. The real goth party for Typo started with Bloody Kisses in 1993, which would go on to be very successful, not just in the metal or goth scene, but also in the mainstream. Black number one, Little Miss Scarol, became a major hit on rock radio and MTV, and it received significant airplay. This hit was a main factor in introducing Typo Negative to a broader audience. It has the haunting keys and the eerie atmosphere you'd expect from a goth album, but there's Definitely some distinct metal power in the guitars and drumming. Black Number One and Christian Woman went on to be popular pieces from the album. I already listed them earlier as examples of Catholic imagery, but they're the big classics and they're worth repeating. So, moving on, Bloody Kisses was essentially a big hit, even going gold in the US, and it really brought the band into the mainstream. October Rust was released in 1996, and it further solidified Typo's mainstream success and expanded their fan base. Building upon the atmospheric soundscapes and introspective themes of Bloody Kisses, October Rust showcased the band's maturation as songwriters and musicians. Tracks like Love You to Death and My Girlfriend's Girlfriend, songs we already tapped earlier because they're that good and that important, became radio hits and MTV staples. The album's lush production, melodic hooks, and evocative lyrics appeal to a wide audience, drawing in listeners beyond the confines of goth of the gothic metal scene. I'd note that the album also features a cover of Neil Young's Cinnamon Girl, and it's a lot of fun. When we were discussing childhood influences, we already mentioned covers of Black Sabbath and Highway Star, and how Typo became rather known for doing covers of more popular songs and putting their twist on the songs. Between Steele's characteristic voice and the haunting keyboards coupled with the otherwise very thrash or even post-thrash vibe of the band, their sound was very distinct. It really brings another layer out of the song. I totally recommend a listen. Typo's fifth album was released in 1999. It was titled World Coming Down. The album is characterized by its dark and introspective themes, melancholic atmosphere, and heavy, doom-laden sound, making it a standout in the band's discography and cementing its status as one of the consummate gothic metal albums of the late 90s. Lyrically, World Coming Down explores themes of depression, addiction, mortality, and existential angst. Steele's introspective and often deeply personal lyrics delve into the depths of human emotion, grappling with inner demons and the struggle of everyday life. Tracks like Everyone I Love Is Dead and Everything Dies exemplify the band's somber and introspective tone with haunting melodies and poignant lyrics that resonate with listeners on a core, primal level. As a matter of fact, Steele had been mourning several people leading up to the writing of this album, including his mother, who had passed in 96. If you've mourned anyone that close to you, you've probably got a feel for that headspace. It definitely colored the album. Musically, World Coming Down builds upon Typo's signature blend of doom metal, goth rock, and alternative metal, incorporating elements of industrial and experimental music to create a dense and atmospheric sonic landscape. The band's heavy, down-tuned guitars, brooding keyboards, and atmospheric production contribute to its dark and foreboding vibe, evoking a sense of impending doom and existential dread. What sets World Coming Down apart as a gothic album is its unapologetically bleak and melancholic atmosphere, as well as its willingness to confront the darker aspects of the human experience head-on. 
While earlier typo negative albums may have flirted with gothic themes and aesthetics, World Coming Down fully embraced the gothic ethos with its introspective lyrics, haunting melodies, eerie keyboards, and dense atmospheric soundscapes creating a mood of somber elegance and existential despair. Overall, World Coming Down stands as a testament to Typo Negative's mastery of the gothic metal genre, showcasing the band's ability to create music that is both emotionally resonant and musically innovative. Its dark and introspective themes, melancholic atmosphere, and heavy, doom-laden sound make it a definitive gothic metal album and a timeless classic in that genre. Life is Killing Me is the sixth studio album by Typo Negative, released in 2003. The album marked a return to the band's gothic metal roots while continuing to explore themes of mortality, depression, and existential angst. Life is Killing Me was recorded amidst personal and professional challenges for Typo Negative. Notably, Steele struggled with substance abuse and mental health issues, which influenced the album's lyrical themes and overall mood. Praised by critics, the album peaked at number 39 on the Billboard 200 chart, making it one of Typo's most commercially successful releases. Along with the usual brooding atmosphere and Steele's haunting vocals, lyrically, the album explores themes of death, despair, and existential angst, with songs like I Don't Wanna Be Me and Life Is Killing Me addressing the struggles of everyday life and the inevitability of mortality. The album's gothic sensibilities are further accentuated by its dark and introspective themes, as well as its wonderful production, as well as its very catchy hooks. But a song worth a listen is Anesthesia. It really has the goth metal we've been describing in all its elements with a great epic shrieking finish. I'd also plug If You Don't Kill Me, I'm Gonna Have to Kill You, I-Y-D-K-M-I-G-T-H-T-K-Y, give me that. It's a definite goth vibe with a nice driving beat. Their seventh album was released fittingly in 2007. The album was highly anticipated by fans as it came after a nearly five-year hiatus following the release of Life is Killing Me in 2003. It had been slowed by ongoing label issues, and it would in fact end up being the only album they put out on their new label. It was also slowed by Steele's ongoing substance abuse issues. Despite the mixed critical reception, Dead Again was embraced by many of Typo's fans, who appreciated its dark and atmospheric sound, as well as its introspective lyrics and complex arrangements. Featuring the usual gothic themes and elements, songs like Dead Again and These Three Things address the struggles of everyday life and the inevitability of mortality. We've skirted around it, but we're going to need to take a minute or five, as things go when I find a tangent, to discuss Steele's substance abuse, which he struggled with through much of his life. Steele's struggles with substance abuse began in his teenage years and persisted throughout his adulthood. He was open about his addiction to drugs and alcohol, acknowledging that he used substances as a way to cope with depression, anxiety, and the pressures of fame. Steele's substance abuse affected his relationships with bandmates, friends, and family members, as well as his physical and mental health. Typo's music often reflected Steele's personal demons with lyrics exploring themes of depression and addiction and existential angst. Songs like Black Number One and Everything Dies captured the darkness and intensity of Steele's inner turmoil, resonating with fans who could relate to his struggles. Over the years, Steele made several attempts to get sober, but he struggled to maintain his sobriety for extended periods. His addiction continued to take a toll on his health and well-being, leading to periods of erratic behavior and public incidents. Despite these challenges, Steele remained dedicated to his music and his fans, continuing to perform and record with Typo Negative 
until his death. Tragically, Peter Steele passed away on April 14th, 2010, at the age of 48. His death was first attributed to heart failure, though autopsy would later show it was due to sepsis from diverticulitis, with complications from his long history of substance abuse cited as contributing factors. Steele's untimely passing sent shockwaves through the music world, leaving fans and fellow musicians mourning the loss of a true icon. In the wake of his death, tributes poured in from fans and colleagues, honoring Steele's contribution to the music world and remembering him as a gifted songwriter, performer, and visionary. Despite his struggles with addiction, Steele's legacy endures with his music continuing to inspire and resonate with audiences around the world. While his death was a tragic reminder of the toll of addiction, Steele's memory lives on in his music and the countless lives he touched during his lifetime. But let's not end on a sad note. There are a few swirls and side notes we haven't gotten into yet, and I didn't know the guy personally, but I get the sneaking suspicion he would not be fond of an episode largely dedicated to him going out on a sad note. So let's pick it up. One of the things we haven't gotten into yet, for I simply have not found a reason to go off onto a tangent about it yet, would be Steele's actual physical presence and appearance. Steele had a physical look that contributed to the intense goth vibe. He was known for his imposing physical presence and distinctive style of dress, both of which contributed to his iconic image as the frontman of Type O. Standing at 6 feet and 7 inches tall, Steele possessed a commanding stature that immediately drew attention. His muscular build, deep voice, and brooding demeanor further added to his imposing presence on stage and in music videos. Steele's style of dress was characterized by its gothic and masculine aesthetic, reflecting his love for dark and dramatic fashion. He often wore all-black clothing, including leather jackets, trench coats, and fitted shirts, which emphasized his tall and muscular physique. Steele also favored tight-fitting pants, often paired with combat boots or platform shoes, adding to his towering stature. In addition to his clothing, Steele was known for his distinctive hairstyles, which typically consisted of long, dark hair styled in a variety of ways. He experimented with different hair lengths and textures over the years, sometimes sporting shoulder-length locks, while at other times opting for a more closely cropped style. Regardless of the specific hairstyle, Steele's dark hair framed his striking features and added to his gothic image and that of Type O. The other yellow brick road we haven't followed just yet is the tongue-in-cheek humor of Typo and Steel. We already noted the origin of feces, but the puns don't end there. We also have, of course, Dark Side of the Womb, a play on words with Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Steel was also fond of subverting expectations in that punk rock way. Kill All the White People and Love You to Death are both examples of subverting expectations. Typo was also not shy about poking fun at their own goth fan base, including on songs like We Hate Everyone and Black Number One, playing on misanthropic and goth culture stereotypes, respectively. My Girlfriend's Girlfriend was another fun one, exploring the idea of a love triangle in a quirky manner. Add in the quirky album art they were known for, and you really get a humorous vibe that runs throughout. Though the dark and brooding was right there with the punk rock envelope pushing, there was also a sense of fun and playfulness. Genius at its best. In summary, Peter Steele is very much the metal OV. There may have been goth metal before, but Type O was a major innovative band that pushed the genre and set the bar. 
A major element in metal and goth alike is authenticity. Though the two subcultures are notably separate, Steel managed to blend both and be authentic in both. A goth and a metal icon, he brought the two together firmly in new and exciting ways with his humor, punky thrash metal, taste for the devious, and for pushing music to new places. Taken a bit too early, he very much deserves to be counted among the old gods as the original vampire of the liminal territory that sits between goth and metal. <laughs> 